What's up and welcome to Ask Father Josh, the podcast where I get to listen to your questions, pray with them, and hopefully respond in such a way that is helpful for you in your walk toward eternity, in your walk toward becoming the particular saint that God our Father desires for you to be. Here's how the show goes. You hit me up with questions dealing with anything and everything from morality to spirituality, relationship advice, evangelization, discipleship, you name it, and we'll try to tackle the question together. I will then receive your question, pray with your question, talk to other theologians and specialists about your question, and then try to respond to it in such a way that it's good for you to grow in virtue, that it's good for you to conform your life to Jesus Christ. However, sometimes the advice I give might not be good for you because I'm imperfect, I'm broken. If that's the case, if my advice does not help you to grow in union with Christ, then I really want to encourage you and invite you to reject whatever it is that I say that is not good for you to become a saint. However, if my advice is helpful, though difficult, then I really want to encourage you to lean into Jesus so that Jesus Christ can give you the grace that you need to to become the saint that you're called to be. If you're a first-time listener, you can always hit me up with new questions at askfatherjosh at ascensionpress.com. And you can also rate us and review us on iTunes and all the other podcast formats that are out there. Whenever you rate us and review us, what it does is it helps other people find out about the show. So if the show is a gift for you, potentially the show can be a gift for other people as well. On today's show, we're going to cover three different topics. We're going to talk about hell and what does hell look like. Uh, we're also going to talk about the papacy of Peter and its biblical roots. And finally, we're going to discuss spiritual intimacy. And this is really a follow-up from a previous show in the past. One of uh, my brother priest uh, in Malta um, hit me up with this particular question. So please stay tuned as we address those questions together and try to um, accompany each other well toward Jesus now and forever. Before we get jumping into those topics, I want to share with you a glory story. So my glory story this week is um, the gift of ordination. It's ordination season. Uh, a lot of my buddies are being ordained right now. And, and as of May 31st, I have celebrated five years, five years of ordination. And it was super cool because um, four years before my ordination, I finally was able to do the St. Louis de Montfort consecration to Jesus through Mary. And this was before Michael Gately's 33 Days to Morning Glory came out which is a really great way to do a consecration to Jesus. Um, but in 2010, I'm pretty sure it did not yet exist. And so all I had was St. Louis de Montfort's version, which was pretty difficult. I'm not going to lie. And for a number of years, I tried to consecrate myself to Jesus through Mary um, using his method, and it just wasn't happening. And so finally, in 2010, I, I just felt this the promptings of the Spirit to try it again. And I did, and I was able by the grace of God to persevere. And I completed my consecration to Jesus through Mary on May 31st, the Feast of the Visitation, 2010. And then after that, I found out that I was going to be ordained on May 31st, 2014. So that was a cool little gift from the Lord. Um, so that's just been a glorious story in itself. I love being married to the church. I love being conformed to Christ in this particular way. I love the state of life, vocation of the priesthood. And I'm so grateful that God uh, has invited me to to live out my walk toward eternity through this particular path of holiness. Um, so that's a glory story. And also just, I got to hang out with my mom this week. Me and my nephew and my mom, we threw a Frisbee together. And, and that might not sound like a big deal, but it was just fun. We literally had so much fun. My mom used to be an athlete back in the day when she was younger. 
And so she still has it. I mean, she was throwing that Frisbee so good, so well. And um, and so we had a blast just hanging out and being with each other. And uh, and I guess just in sharing hearts with some of my brother priests this past week, we were talking about what's some of the biggest graces that we have come to recognize over these five, ten plus years of ordination for the, for us who have been ordained in my diocese. And one of the insights I share with them, and I'll, I'll tell you, is is this recognizing and reverencing my limitation, um, limitations. I, I think in the beginning of my priesthood, I thought I could do everything. And, and just because I could do certain things does not mean that I should do certain things. And Mother Teresa always says that the, that the devil tempts good people with good things so that good people um, do so many things uh, that they're not doing the one thing that God is asking of them. And I've really learned to reverence not only my limitations, but the limitations of other people, my humanity, right? Because God loves my humanity. God delights in my humanity. God embraces my humanity. He abides with me in my humanity. And so um, learning well how to love my humanity and also love the humanity, the limitations of other people as well, so that we can really lean on each other and collaborate with each other. And I can make up for what's lacking in them and them, whoever they are, can make up for what's lacking in me has been such a great gift to learn over these past five years. And I just, if, the, if these five years have been so awesome, I cannot wait. I can't wait to see what the next five years have in store for me and the bride, for me and the church, as we continue to walk with each other to to the bridegroom, Jesus. So thank you for your prayers, everybody who's prayed for me this far in my vocation. And please keep them coming because I just, I'm, I'm probably more in love now with the Lord than I've ever been before because We've been through it all together. I mean, <laughs> there's still so much more, but we've been through so much together now, he and I, and uh, yeah, it's been a gift. So the glory story is family and limitations. Praise God. All right, before we get into today's topics, I have a few follow-up points from previous episodes. First, Anonymous writes this, Father Josh, I just wanted to say I love your podcast, and I thank you for sharing it with the world. Uh, there used to be a song from Lecrae I used to always jam out to Tell the world, tell the world, tell them everywhere to go Something, something, and mashed potatoes <laughs> I recently listened to your podcast about the girl who was sexually assaulted It stood out to me because I went through something similar recently And your words provided me with a lot of healing I just wanted to say how thankful I am to have found your podcast And that it helped me get through the tough time I will continue to pray for her and for you. I wanted to ask if you would pray for me, as I am also a firm believer in intercessory prayer. I ask that you pray for my faith, chastity, the will to resist temptation of settling or compromising my beliefs uh, and my future relationships. I've recently been struggling with these things, especially in the college environment. Thank you and God bless. Anonymous, I got you. I got you. I will pray for you. I will fast for you. I will offer mass for you. Um, you are such a gift, and your desires are so beautiful. Your desires for a deeper faith, for chastity, um, they're such a gift to the Lord, and you console his heart. And I, I just want you to know that the Father delights in you. He sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you through and through, and you are such a gift to him. That's who you are. All right, our next feedback comes in from someone else who is anonymous, this person writes, Dear Father Josh, thank you so much for your thoughtful response to our question regarding natural family planning, NFP. My husband and I both listened, and it truly resonated with us. Though it is so scary, we are putting our trust in him and pursuing an NFP class. Praise God. 
Uh, blessings to you. P.S. It was funny that you referenced that Matt Mara song. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Boo, 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 boo. My one defense. I something, something. Oh, God, how I need you. Boo, 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 boo. My husband loves that song since he first heard it at a Catholic men's conference in our area. That was how he knew your answer was legit. Too legit. Too legit to quit. Hey, hey. So props to the Holy Spirit on that one. Anonymous. Praise God. Like the Lord knows how to communicate to each one of us in a way that will resonate with our spirit and that will confirm a message that we are open to in this particular season in our life. So yeah, I will continue to pray for you as well. And finally, uh, my buddy, Father Cedric, wrote in, Father Josh, I read your book. Well done. Touched me. Congratulations on Cafe Catholica in Houston. I've spoken to that group, and they are large and very enthusiastic. Yeah, so uh, this summer, I will be speaking at Cafe Catholica in Houston, Texas, and I am so excited about that. That's going to be so much fun. And shout out to you, Father Cedric, because Father Cedric used to be a guest on my TV show I had way back in the day when I was in seminary, Focus Worldwide Network, Focus TV. And, uh, and he would always come through, and he was such a gift. And Father Cedric, I also hope you know your prophecy came true because when we were on that show back in maybe it was like 2011, you were my guest, um, and you said in that particular episode that I would write a book one day, and now my book is out. I mean, and you can get it. You've read it, as you said in your, your follow-up. Uh, thank you for buying it and reading it. Uh, but for those of you who have not read it yet, it's called Broken and Blessed. You can get it on Amazon or com. You can get it at the the gift shop at St. Joseph's Abbey and Seminary College at Ascension Christian Gifts here in the Ascension Parish area. You can get it at Catholic Arts and Gifts. You can get it at Barnes and Nobles. You can get it all over. And so um, please get the book. And it's also on audio as well if you think you have friends that it might be helpful to for them and their walk with Jesus. Um, I've been able to experience so much um, so much joy lately because so many people have come back to the sacraments um, because of the way that the Holy Spirit has communicated to them through that particular work, that book that I wrote um, earlier last year. So thank you for everyone who has it, and please share it with other people. If it helped you, maybe it could help them also grow in a deeper relationship with Jesus. And that's what it's all about. All right, on to the show. First question comes in from Kate. Kate writes this, what does hell look like? Hi, I'm Kate. And I have a question about Dante's Inferno. Here's the history in case you didn't know. If you don't know, now you know. Uh, Dante wrote a book in the Middle Ages called The Divine Comedy. It told us about his journey into heaven and then hell. I've always pictured hell as this place full of fire where mad people have nothing to drink and only eat dust and rocks and sit in a cell with laser bars while you sit there and moan because the devil guy keeps poking you with the fork. Learned this info in a dream I had when I was five or six after I lied to my mom about cookies and dinner. But Dante says there are different sins, different levels, different punishment. So my question is, do we believe that this is what hell looks like? Kate, yeah, Kate, that's a, a great question. So I've never been to hell. Don't plan on going. So um, I can only tell you what, what Holy Mother Church says about the topic of heaven and hell. So Dante's Divine Comedy, it uses the terms levels of heaven and hell. The church would more properly use the terms degrees of perfection 
or degrees of punishment. And so Dante speaks of like levels of perfection, levels of punishment. We would say degrees is more the proper term. The degree of perfection experienced by those who are saved by the grace of God, right, because we're saved by God's grace, is proportioned to each one's merits. And the degree of punishment experienced by those who are damned to hell because of their choice, because they choose to go to hell, is proportioned to each one of their sins, their guilt. Uh, So the Council of Florence in 1439, which is like way back in the day, Back in the day before my parents even thought of me because my parents weren't born and their parents weren't born. This is way back in the day. So 1439, this is before the Protestant revolt. So this is way back in the day. Uh, The Council of Florence declared that the souls uh, of the perfectly just are are most definitely gazing on the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's my language, the Trinity, as he is. But there are some saints who will be able to behold the Trinity more perfectly than others Two, get this, the degree of their holiness. So, example, the Blessed Mother, the Virgin Mary, is in heaven. Um, And so is Mother Teresa of Calcutta. We know she's a saint in heaven. She's already worked miracles by the grace of God. And so they're both in heaven. However, however, Mary was and is more perfectly united to God by his grace um, than Mother Teresa was. Therefore, Mary is able to behold the triune God to a different degree because of her merit. So they're both in experiencing the beatific vision. However, Mary in heaven um, is definitely beholding the Trinity more more perfectly, um, even though Mother Teresa has been perfected, right? There's the degree of her perfection. Um, likewise, the Council of Trent, also this is also counsel back in the day, um, defines that the justified person who is saved by God's grace merits an increase of heavenly glory by their good works. Uh, and this is important in sacred scripture, right? Good works is important. We do not believe we're saved by works, right? Some people lie and say, oh, Catholics believe you have to work out your, like, you know, we're not. But we do believe our good works are very much important, right? We're saved by God's grace. Um, however, our faith should be manifested in our works. So the Gospel of Matthew, um, Jesus Christ himself says, For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man for what he has done. That's, that's works, Matthew 16, 27. Also, St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, The one who plants and the one who waters are equal, and each shall receive their wages according to their labor. So, just as those who will be saved will all experience the beatific vision, but to a different degree, the same can be said for those who are damned to hell. They are all in hell, but the experience of hell is in different degrees proportioned to each one's guilt. Uh, so in the councils of Lyon, as lions are lions, um, and of Florence, they affirm that there are different degrees of hell with unequal punishment. So I'm going to do some speculative theology here. This is just my podcast, so I'm going to take some scriptures, and I'm going to speculate that these scriptures that I'm about to um, read to you affirm the different levels of hell. I'm open to being critiqued. I'm open to being challenged, um, uh, but I'm open to your comments. But I'm also open to maybe being affirmed in these scriptures as well. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 24, Jesus Christ says this, I tell you that it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And then we turn to Jude which is the last book in the New Testament before the book of Revelation, Jude chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. And the inspired author wrote this, Now I desire to remind you, though you were once for all fully informed, that he who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels that did not keep their own position but left their proper dwelling have been kept by him in eternal chains in the deepest darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities 
which likewise acted immorally and indulged in unnatural lust, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So look, um, real quick, the Catholic Church has never condemned a single person to hell. We've never said a person by name. Like We've never said Hitler's in hell. We've never said uh, Osama bin Laden's in hell. We've never said that. Um, but we do believe that hell exists, and we do believe right that there are people in hell because the book of Jude says it, that the people in Sodom and Gomorrah um, are experiencing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, but with that, we take Jude's text. We know that many of the people who live in Sodom and Gomorrah are in hell for their unnatural lust. Now we go back to Matthew's text, which was the first scripture I read, Matthew eleven twenty four, And it seems that Jesus is telling us that for some, the eternal judgment will be worse than that of Sodom and Gomorrah's eternal experience of hell. So there's two different levels, two different degrees of hell to be experienced. It's all the same hell. It's all forever, 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 ever, which would be really messed up um, if that was me. Um, but it's also different levels. This is backed up by the doctors of the church. St. Augustine, um, not necessarily this particular scripture passage, but St. Augustine does comment on this. And he says that in their wretchedness, the lot of some of the damned will be more tolerable than that of others. Justice demands that the punishment be commiserate with the guilt. So, yeah, Dante was certainly onto something, Kate, in his divine comedy. Um, but that's all I got to say about hell. I like to focus on heaven a lot more than hell, but I do acknowledge hell is there. And I ain't trying to go there either. So, uh, <laughs> Lord, draw me to heaven. I'm so weak, Lord. Give me the grace to persevere. So, uh, let me know what you thought about that, Kate. Hit me up at AskFatherJoshUaEssentialPress.com. Let me know if that was helpful. If you have any comments or critiques you want to add to my answer to your question. Okay, next question is another theological question. We're getting some deep theology today, y'all. So, this question comes in from... Kennedy. Kennedy writes this, Peter, Peter, the first pope. Uh, Peter, isn't that one of the characters on the Chronicles of Narnia? Peter, 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 um, Peter. Hi, Father Josh. By the way, I think you are an amazing, amazing priest. I had a question about St. Peter, Peter as the first pope of the Catholic Church. As an on-fire Catholic, I see evidence for why Jesus assigned Peter as the rock. You were my rock of the Catholic Church. But how do I answer my sister's dismissal of the statement when she says that this common Catholic fact is just a Catholic's interpretation of the scripture, since Jesus doesn't specifically use the word Pope to describe Peter in the Bible? Furthermore, how do we know our church was built on the 100% truth of Jesus Christ and not just man's interpretation of how Jesus wanted us to go about religion? Thank you for the help and know that I'm still praying for you, Kennedy. Kennedy, I am so grateful for your prayers. Um, keep them up. I definitely need them. And that's a great question. So the first question I would ask your sister is this. Does she believe in the Trinity? Yes or no? Because, get this, the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. Now, just because the word Trinity is not in the Bible, that does not mean that the Trinity is not described in the Bible. Um, but the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Heck, the word Bible is not in the Bible. And how many of us go around talking about our faith is in the Bible? I love the Bible, but the Bible is not in the Bible itself. Right? That's a word that we gave to that collection of books, the canon of sacred scriptures. So then my next question would be to your sister is this. Do you believe in the Bible? And if you do... How do you know it's true? This is a really important question to ask people. How do you know the Bible is true? A lot of people might say, oh, well, because it makes me feel good. Well, a lot of things make me feel good. 
uh, because I've had experiences with it. Well, I've had a lot of experiences with things that are questionable and some are good, some are bad. How do we absolutely 100% know that the Bible is legit, that those books and the canon are all inspired and infallible? Uh, Where did it come from? Where did the Bible come from? It did not fall out of the sky. Jesus Christ didn't hand it to us right before he ascended into heaven. So where did the Bible come from? As you know, the Bible was not complete in the lifetime of Jesus. So if you lived after the resurrection, the first couple hundred years of Christ ascending into heaven, and you had a question about salvation and truth, objective truth in marriage and the Eucharist and baptism and confession, and you, you couldn't just say, well, if, if you want to know about baptism being salvific, just turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Or if you want to know about the true presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, turn to John chapter 6. Nah, you could not do that because in the early church, they did not have a canon of scripture known as the Bible. All they had was the church, which 1 Timothy in the New Testament claims is the pillar and foundation of the truth. He does not say that the Bible is the pillar and foundation of the truth. He says the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And it was the Pope who gathered with the bishops of the Catholic Church in the Synod of Rome in the year 382, led by Pope Damascus, the Bishop of Rome, who also commissioned Jerome's Vulgate. Right? At the canon of Scripture, the Bible was put together. And again, at the Synod of Hippo, attended by the North African Catholic bishops in the year 393, they affirmed the canon of Scripture that Pope Damascus put together in 382 at the Synod of Rome because he was the successor of the Apostle Peter. So if your sister believes in the Bible, which I hope and pray she does, if your sister prays for the Scriptures in the Bible, and which I hope and pray she does, then she believes in a specific collection of books that the Pope of the 4th century claimed to be the infallible inspired Word of God. Okay, so that's really important. Before we get to the Scripture now, historically speaking, again, we can trace every single pope, which pope comes from the word papa, which papa means father. In St. Paul, every priest is a father, right? Every bishop is a priest. Every pope is a bishop. Um, bishop of Rome, right, is a father. Paul used the word father in the sacred scriptures. He says, I became a father to you. Papa means father. And so that's the same word that you call me, Father Josh, right? Except I'm not Papa Josh and Father Josh. Papa John's. I wonder if John, Papa John's is named after the Pope. I don't know. Anyways, but before we get to that, look at history. Pope Francis can be traced back to Pope John Paul, who could be traced back to Pope Paul VI, who could be traced back to Pope Cletus Linus, going all the way back to Peter. Right? There's a historical, unbroken line of succession from Peter all the way down to Francesco today. Now, Peter's papacy, done. let's talk about Peter real quick. Peter's papacy is certainly seen in the sacred scriptures, not only because he spoke for the apostles in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, or because whenever the apostles were named, he was always headed, he always headed the list of the apostles, like in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, and not only because it was Peter who addressed the crowds on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and not only because he headed the meeting that elected Matthias to replace Judas as a successor to the apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 13 through 26, or because he led the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, or because he proclaimed the dogmatic teaching in Acts chapter 15, 7 through 11, and not only because he was the first apostle to excommunicate a heretic in Acts chapter 8, which by the way, the last time a politician was excommunicated in America was in the Archdiocese of New Orleans, and the politician was excommunicated because of racism. So shout out to New Orleans for standing up for racial justice. And not only because Peter uh, had his name changed from Simon Peter, 
right, the rock. When, and when Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 18, he said, you are kepha, which is an Aramaic word for rock. And upon this kepha, rock, I'll build my church. Peter is the foundation of the church that has Jesus Christ as her cornerstone. But also, not only all those reasons, not only because Jesus Christ said, Peter, I'm a, uh, once you fall, come back, you know, your faith will strengthen the brethren. But Peter also received this gift from Jesus in the gospel of Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Jesus said to Peter, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. St. Peter, sing it out by God for the authority that provides for the forgiveness of sins and the making of rules. Again, Matthew 18, 18, all the apostles were given to share a similar gift from God, but Peter had it in a special sense. Peter was the only apostle who Jesus Christ promised the keys of the kingdom to. Jesus said, I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to you. In ancient history, this is Matthew 16, 19, in the ancient history, to be given the keys to the city in ancient history meant that you were given free access to have authority over that city. The city that Peter has the keys to are the city of heaven itself. This symbolism is also used in Isaiah 22, right? And Peter Pass on that authority that goes down to every single apostle who is the Pope. So let's go back to the first question now about the role of the church in giving us the Bible. Right? The church, the pillar and foundation of truth, not only gives us the Bible, but the church has the authority, if she gave us the Bible, to interpret accurately the infallible inspired word of God. If we believe the Pope and the bishops who were united with him were infallible when they gave us the Bible, which we all love, Catholics have the Bible, Protestants have the Bible, Evangelicals have the Bible, Baptists, Methodists, non-denoms, Anglicans, we all have this thing that we call the Bible. The Bible came from the Catholic Church. This is history. This is historical truth, right? Bible came from the Catholic Church who gathered together with Pope Damascus in 382. Historical truth. So if the Pope can give us the Bible, and we can all say, this is the infallible inspired word of God. If he was right when it came to that, then the church, Holy Mother Church with the apostles, like the big T tradition, should be the one to also help us to interpret the word of God. And the church tells us that the Bible is inspired. So if we're going to receive the Bible, then we have to receive what the church says to be true about the Bible as well. That the papacy of Peter, likewise, is is the, the typology is there in the Old Testament, and Jesus Christ certainly makes it clear for us in the New Testament. But we don't have to just look at the Bible alone, sola scriptura, which is nowhere in the Bible, to have the Bible alone apart from big T tradition, but we also have Holy Mother Church to tell us these things, right? The church tells us the truth about the Bible and what's very obvious to us and also what's maybe not so obvious to us. Uh, we can't separate the church and the Bible, right? The Bible comes from the church, and the Bible also affirms the role of the church in salvation history. So hopefully, Kennedy, that was helpful for you. What do you think? Um, do y'all have any other additional advice for Kennedy and for his sister? Hit me up at AskFatherJosh at AscensionPress.com and let me know. All right, we're going to take a quick break. we come back, dive into our final question. Wouldn't it be nice to have a Bible that actually explains how to navigate it and make sense of it? A Bible that includes a detailed plan for how to read it with a page layout that's designed for study and personal devotion? Now for the first time ever, there is a Catholic Bible that does just that. A Bible that incorporates the same color-coded learning system that has proven so effective in the Great Adventure studies. I have had the privilege of working with some of the most talented biblical scholars of our day, Mary Healy, Andrew Swafford, and Peter Williamson, to create the Great Adventure Catholic Bible. This Bible makes the complex simple as it guides you through the narrative woven throughout salvation history. 
The translation is the Revised Standard Version, Second Catholic Edition, an elegant, accurate, and modern Catholic translation. The Great Adventure Catholic Bible is perfect for your personal devotion and Bible study or as a gift for friends and family. If you want to understand sacred scripture and be transformed by the Word of God, then this is the Bible for you. Pick up your copy at ascensionpress.com. And we're back. Just a quick reminder, you can send me your questions at askfatherjosh at ascensionpress.com. You can also send me a voice note, and don't forget to rate us and review us on iTunes so other people can find out about the show. Final question comes in from one of my brother priests, Father Brendan, Father Brendan writes this. It's a follow-up to my spiritual intimacy question. Dear Father Josh, I'm a priest from Malta in Europe, and I came across your podcast quite by chance through a young couple that I accompany spiritually. First of all, I just want to thank you and encourage you for how beautifully and joyfully you share the Word of God and the church's teachings with your listeners. The couple I'm journeying with have obtained a lot of strength and encouragement through your words. I do have a question if I may, about one of your podcasts from February, the Valentine's Day episode, because this young couple was a little confused by something you said, and they asked me for guidance about it. And I have to admit that after listening to the podcast myself a couple of times, I still couldn't figure out how I could help them. Basically, it's where towards the end of the segment about spiritual intimacy around the 19 minute mark in the podcast, you say that there is some spiritual sharing that couples should reserve for engagement and an even deeper spiritual sharing that they should reserve for marriage. Now, since I always encourage the couples I journey with to make prayer together a firm part of their courtship, I was wondering how you would distinguish one kind of spiritual sharing from the other. For instance, what that would that include a couple sharing with each other about spiritual consolation they may have received? Would it perhaps include sharing about doubts and spiritual dryness? Might be it a spiritual sharing that includes questions and issues about their sexuality. So basically, my question would be, what in your mind is the kind of spiritual sharing or intimacy, I'm using the words interchangeably, by the way, that would ideally be reserved for a more committed partnership, courtship, like engagement and marriage? I thank you for your kind attention. And by the way, I read that you're a pastor in Louisiana. In 2000, I spent my gap pastor year between philosophy and theology in the seminary at Our Lady of Mercy Parish in Baton Rouge, best months of my life. Louisiana still is like home to me. May God bless you, protect you, and keep filling you and your ministry with joy. Father Brennan. Yo, Father Brennan, thank you so much. Yeah, so I love Our Lady Mercy too. Whenever I was in, um, before I entered seminary, when I was just having my conversion, I went to Our Lady Mercy's Adoration Chapel pretty much every single day. And that's really where I cultivated a deeper intimacy with Christ. So I'm so glad you got to spend time there as well. I will pray for you next time I go to the Adoration Chapel. Yeah, I agree with you. So um, thank you for asking me to clarify that. That's super helpful for me to be more more razor sharp in that, which I say. So yeah, um, a few things. I do think that couples should pray together um, when they're dating. I think they should definitely pray together when they're engaged. I think they should share with each other when they're experiencing dryness or consolation, sadness or joy. That's all really good. But like you said, I think it comes to specifically the spirituality of the sexual gift of a relationship. Certainly, as you know, we would not ever propose that a couple who's dating or engaged engage in the physical, um, indulge in the physical aspect of that relationship that is reserved for the sacrament of marriage. But also, I really encourage couples to reserve their manifestation of expressing uh, without prudence the the longing that they have, the spiritual communion of body and soul in the, the marital act, that longing to the other person too much. Like it's, it's good to say like, I can't wait to marry you. I cannot wait till the two of us become one flesh. Um, I, I'm so attracted to you. I find you beautiful. And I, I really want to experience the two becoming one flesh. Like that's, that's fine. 
But I think sometimes some couples, um, they share way too much of their longing for the, the marital aspect. Their, their, their longing and prayer to experience the two becoming one flesh with their, with their partner who they're engaged to. And that can bring their partner who they're engaged to in, in a near occasion of sin. And that could also lead them to, um, to do things with each other that would not be good. And if the engagement did not last, well, now you've done something that you can't ever get back, right? You've, you've, um, you might be very wounded, basically, because of that. So I always like to say reserve certain things. Right? Practice prudence. Uh, share your chicken nuggets. Withhold your barbecue sauce. Um, specifically, your barbecue sauce is that desire that you might have welling up in your heart whenever you think about and pray about your upcoming marriage, which um, which you should be praying about. And, and I think if you can have this prudence with regard to your your relationship now, where it's at as a couple who's dating or a couple who's engaged, if you can have that custody of your tongue and not share every single desire that you have for that person until you're married with that person, then what that can do is that can also help you whenever you get married. This is one of my buddies told me this other day. He's a counselor. He said, what that can do is it can help you when you are married, to not, um, if you're trying to avoid abstain from um, having children in the current season of your life for whatever reason, um, then that custody of tongue that you practice as an engaged couple will then be able to be applied in your marriage, and you will be able to maybe not say things that could elicit a deeper physical um, thing to happen between the spouses who aren't in a space in their marriage for that to take place because of whatever reason that they're trying to avoid. So, Hopefully that is helpful for you, Father Brendan, and for your couple that you're walking with. Um, thank you for your affirmation, too, and your encouragement, brother. That, that definitely means a lot coming from a brother priest. So, again, I'll pray for you when I go to mercy. Let me know if that was helpful. Hit me up again at askfatherjosh at assistantpress.com. And, and let me know if that was uh, somewhat helpful or if it was even more confusing. <laughs> Lord, give me the gift of tongue so I can only speak that which you want me to say. Amen. So, that brings us to the end of today's show. Um, the, the basic message that I want to give of today's show that is, uh, is an invitation for all of us to pray for is a prayer that we can all recite this week is, God, give me the grace to experience the gift of tongues so that I can share that which you want me to share in relationships with people so that I can share that which you want me to share when it comes to the scriptures and catechesis with people so that I can share that which you want me to share and only you want me to share um, when it comes to speaking about matters of salvation. Lord, give me the gift of tongues and give those who will receive my gift of tongues, the gift of interpretation of tongues, so they can only hear that which you want them to hear that is good for them in their walk toward eternity. So let us pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we surrender. We surrender all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our actions to your Holy Spirit, to your Spirit of Christ. Come and dwell with us. Have your home with us in our hearts, in our bodies, in our lives, in our families, in our friendships, in our churches, in our ministries, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace environments. We give you permission, Father, to do that which you want to do for our good, the good of our world, and most importantly, so that we can imitate Jesus and glorify you in our walk toward eternity. We ask this prayer, Heavenly Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. God bless y'all. I can't wait to continue to walk with you toward Jesus now and forever.